Hello and welcome to the Brave Business Podcast, brought to you by the accounting, tax, audit and advisory firm Blick Rothenberg. Brave by name and brave by nature, this series is different. Aimed at entrepreneurial businesses, we focus on providing market updates, practical guidance, timely insights and professional opinions from industry experts, helping you make informed decisions for your business. I'm Declan Curry, journalist and broadcaster. This is the second of two episodes that focus on the key considerations for an owner-managed business during its life cycle, from startup through to maturity and finally sale and succession. In part two, today we'll focus on the growth and sale of a business. Joining me to share their insights and their expertise from Blick Rothenberg, its corporate tax partner Rob Goodley and audit partner Darsh Shah. And we're also joined by David Ray, co-founder of Sparta Global. Welcome all of you to the discussion. David, just tell us what is Sparta Global? Sparta Global is a technology services and education company. Uh, what the company does is really address the, the gap in technology skills in the UK, whereby we train graduates through our own academies across the UK in key skills that are in high demand within tech. And then we actually deploy uh, the Spartans, as we call them, once they're trained to work with our client base in government, commercial and large financial services organisations. The company's around 1,000 people and has grown since we founded the company in 2015. Okay, thank you. You're going to help us uh, understand what it takes to grow a business and then uh, how you sell it on and how you think about exit strategies as well. And we'll hear more from you in just a moment. Rob, I'm going to start the uh, discussion uh, with uh, you. So you're advising an entrepreneur. They've started up the business. It's up and running. It's growing. Then what? What are the next stages they need to think about? So I think once the business is established, there's kind of three things that I try to get um, my clients to think about. So the first one is to try and lift your eyes to the horizon. So in that startup phase, it can obviously be quite fraught. You're just trying to keep the business alive and establish it. But once it's there, I think you, know, you need to start thinking about what the end goal is. So is it to sell the business? Is it to keep it in the family and bring a, a son or daughter in? Um, or is it just to continue on, you know, as kind of a lifestyle business? I think once you start asking those sort of questions, you can then, you know, make decisions with that end goal in mind and get there incrementally. And it just helps that whole decision making process. When do you have to make those decisions? Does that have to be clear in your mind from the very, very early days of the business or can you make it up as you go along? I don't think it has to be clear from the start personally, because I think often it's just a passion or it's a gap in the market that someone looks to exploit. And you kind of need to get through that. Does this exist? Is it a real business? Can I make a success of it? Before you then think, okay, I've got something, what am I going to do with it? So I think there's no set point when it comes, but I think, you know, once you've established the business, I think that's a question you should start to ask yourself. And obviously circumstances change and you might have to change your thinking alongside it. Of course, yeah. Okay, so what's next? So I think the second thing um, is to think about the team you've got, the people around you, and there's kind of two elements to that. So firstly, who have you got in the business? So naturally, you know, in the startup phase, there's a lot of key man risk. But I think as you start to establish, you need to kind of think, well, how do I make this business more robust? What don't I know that I can bring people into the business to help me with? And then the second element is kind of the external kind of advisors. So as you grow, what you need and what the business needs in terms of advice evolves. It always makes good sense to see what extra advisors you might need to complement what you've already got 
to make sure you're making the right decisions at the right time. And then lastly, it's kind of risk and compliance. So what is a risk in your business and how are you managing it? Because if you don't get hold of those as the business establishes, you can have you know some quite significant problems down the line. And I'll bring Dash in on that in just a moment. But the broad theme that struck me there was that as the business grows, it becomes more complex. And you as the founder, the owner, you're not going to have all the answers. No, absolutely not. Um, and also the advisors you started out with at the beginning might not have all the answers either. And I think the real danger is, you know, what you don't know, what questions you should be asking. If you just increase the pool of people that you're looking at to help you with those, you'll get a better answer. Josh, talk to me a little about compliance. Talk to me as well about the exit strategy. As an entrepreneur, as an owner, you tend to spend all your time thinking about growing the business and running the business, but you need to have in your mind some idea of how and when you get out of the business. Yeah, I mean, there are situations or circumstances where there might be succession planning, uh, where exit is not an option because you've got either a family business or uh, management of, uh, ready to take over and just do an MBO. But there are occasions where you want to plan for an exit. Um, and normally, I think you should look at least two years ahead. And I know it sounds a long time, but actually it isn't. Once uh, a business is properly established and, you know, it's a serious business that's now considering offers, I would say you need a very robust internal management team to take you to the next journey because the whole um, regime of going through a due diligence, the getting ready for a sale, surrounding yourself by with um, external advisors, I think you also need a very strong internal team that can cope with those demands as well as for the management to continue running the business. And as Rob mentioned earlier, the advisors that you would have started with at the start of the business may not have all the answers. And at that, that's the point that perhaps you need to uh, start looking at the external team as well. David, thinking about how your business has grown and how it's developed over the years, how much of that is a, a, an echo of your experience? Yeah, I think there's definitely some points that, that resonate with me. I think when we first started the business, as Rob mentioned, you know, I was, I was wearing a lot of hats, doing, doing everything in the company from marketing, uh, HR, finance, even doing the P&L and balance sheet, you know, which I'd, I'd learned about, you know, literally two months before starting the business. So, you know, there was a time where I was having to spin a lot of plates. But as the business grew and professionalized, I started to bring in more senior managers within each of those areas to manage those departments, really, to bring in some more rigor into the organization, uh, as well as, you know, improving the level and quality of advisors that we were using right from legal accountancy. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of those points do resonate with me. What was the point when you realized that you weren't a small entrepreneurial company anymore, that you were a decent sized growing business? Is there a mindset change? Yeah, definitely. I think the first stage is where you start to hire individuals or see people in the office and you, and you don't know their name. You know, that's where it, it, it goes beyond that 100 people in the organization. We we had a very rapid growth story from when we grew Sparta Global in 2015. We grew to around 150 people in the space of two years. So you can Im imagine it was very difficult to know everybody. In the early days, you'd go to the pub on a Friday. You knew everyone's personal story, you know, the name of their girlfriend, boyfriend, wife, dog. But yeah, as it gets bigger, it gets very, very difficult to know everyone, although you want to. Uh, yeah, it, it does really change the, the shape of the company. Now, that changes it? your role as the leader of the organization as well. You're no longer the, you're not the head of the family anymore. 
Yeah, that's right. I think it, it, it's that sort of classic working in the business and working on the business. I think for the first year, I was very much working in the business, looking at each area, micromanaging every element of the business. But as the business grew, I had to really extract myself from that and look at the long-term vision, strategy, and the goals really, and the overall growth story. And that's where there was a real shift in, in how I was managing the business. Rob, I imagine that for many business leaders, that's the first of the teething troubles of growth, that recogni- recognition that it's not a, it's not a, they're not running the business like a, like, like a family anymore. Yeah, I think that's right. I think some businesses stop there, that, that, that their growth story stops because, um, you know, the founders not willing or able to evolve, uh, evolve their role. But I mean, as David says, if you can, it can unlock so much potential, just recognizing that you need other people to complement your skill set recognizes as david said that actually the, the value he's bringing to the business was you know the overall strategy and direction there were other people that could do his internal roles probably better than he could um so having that recognition can then take the business to the next level is it an emotional time is it an emotional wrench when you realize that you can't do it all oh definitely i think in the, in the early days you get used to doing every single role uh, so when you start delegating, you, you you have a period where you're micromanaging and really irritating the people that you've hired. And, and it's at the point where they tell you, look, just leave me to it, that you realize that people can do a better job, really. And that's the stage I probably reached around three or four years ago, really. Just letting people get on with their jobs is the best way of managing. That your baby's all grown up and doesn't quite need as much. It's still your baby. When things go wrong, you, you get drawn into <laughs> into these issues and firefighting as ultimately, as a CEO, you've got to make the difficult decisions. Talk about how you build the team that you then need. So you're bringing all these people with expertise in from outside. You may or may not know them. You'll certainly uh, have done your sort of diligence on their track record. Is there a trust issue? This whole point again about letting go, trusting other people to do the roles that you used to do. Talk me through that. Yeah, I think it was an an evolution, really. So in the early phase, you know, I was really responsible for all, all the selling in the organization. And when we were a startup at the start, it was difficult to get good people. So we had a, a phase at the start where we, we had a novel idea of hiring actors to do the, the selling, which probably wasn't the best approach because they're often going to, to auditions or working on EastEnders in, in the afternoon. But they were great on the phone. But I realized I had to change the hiring policy at that point and bring in more professional salespeople. So it was an evolution of realizing that not to just bringing people in because they're cheap. Because I think when you're a startup, you, you, you're trying to save costs, but hiring the right individuals on the right salary. So, you know, it was hiring people on maybe more, a higher salary so they could actually do the job in, in the right way, really. Rob, what are the tips for building a team and avoiding mistakes? Because mistakes will be made, but they can be difficult and complex to unwind. I think that's right. I mean, that this is a question that every business grapples with, right? So there's no fixed answers. But I think it's about recognising amongst the management team you've got, recognising where you've got gaps. And then, you know, trying to make sure you're finding people who are really going to fit into those gaps. And then I think more than anything, it's about then culture. Is this going to be the right cultural fit? Are they going to fit with not only where the business is now, but where we want it to go? Um, and I think if you get that cultural fit wrong, that can be where there's there's real problems. What about financing? How do you secure the financing that you need to expand the business? I'm assuming that your need for finance grows as the business grows. That's right. I mean, we we had a rapid period of growth in the first two years where we grew the company from zero to 150 people in 2017. At that point, we knew if we were going to continue to grow and open new offices in central London and the regions, we were going to need some outside capital, really. And at that point, my business partner and I had an option. Either we went down the banking route and 
and had more debt in the company, which we didn't really favor, or go down the PE route and get some growth capital into the company from an external investor who could also add value in other areas outside of the, the capital itself. And it also provided an opportunity for us to, to de-risk an element of our shareholding. Because the biggest stress when you're running a company is, is the cash flow. That's what keeps you up at night, when you, especially when you're growing at a rapid rate, you're always worried about cash. And the PE gave us, the first PE deal really gave us the option to maybe de-risk a bit and continue the growth story as well. And this was your step. So you brought in private uh, equity investors You've done it twice, but let's talk about the first stage. First of all, did they come to you or did you go to them? Because the company was growing so quickly, uh, my business partner and I had a lot of conversations around the next chapter of what we were going to do in the organization. And we were getting a lot of approaches from large corporate finance organizations and and PE organizations. So at that point, I'd hired a a non-exec director who had his own network within PE. He said, actually, you should start talking to private equity and see whether you want to do a transaction. So we started to meet different private equity houses in London and across, across the UK. Uh, some of the, the, the PE houses we met really didn't understand our model, or there wasn't really a good rapport with the individuals we met. But when we did meet key capital partners who were our first PE backer, there was an instant rapport with the team. So we knew straight away the chemistry was right and they understood our culture and really our vision for, for the company. And I think that that was the, the key focus for us, that rapport, as well as their ability to add value for the next part of our journey, really. Darshan, I've just fleshed this out a little. There, there are a couple of interesting sort of threads from that. One is uh, that you need to, if you've had unsolicited offers or you're putting yourself out in the marketplace, um, you need to assess who you're dealing with and what they've got to offer as well as your own business and then finding people that you think are going to click that get what the business is about. I, I agree. And when um, David and I met after his first, um, before his first PE deal and we were involved in, we assisted in that first um, transaction, I recall there were more no's than yes uh, by him and his team and his advisors. Um, uh, not necessarily because the, the, the consideration wasn't what they thought was um, uh, worth looking at or not looking at. It was more, more more to do with the fit, the cultural fit, and if they get the business. And I think also if they believe in the same story, and that's quite key because it's not just about the first transaction. It's actually where does the business go from that? And I think that was pretty, pretty very important for David and his business partner that we come in now, we all grow this to where I needed to go next and beyond, and that's the vision they all have to share. So I think there's some offers you just, do not uh, look at because they're just poking, just exploring, maybe probably trying to get to know more of your business than you want them to know. But there are some that you know if they've got a good reputation in the market, this is the right PE house that, uh, not, not, not just the, the reputation of the PE house, but the portfolio manager or the director is going to sit on the board that we can have these kind of conversations and they believe in the story. And I think that was the challenge. And hence, coming back to my point right at the start was, this is the planning that takes, that you need to consider this in advance it's not something you do after an offer has come in but you start having that those kind of conversation before you um, enter the market what happens if it's a surprise offer that you you didn't think yourself as the owner of the business that it might be of interest to anyone else or it was at the stage where uh, outside finance could be attracted well it has to make sure that uh, the um, that ultimately they still get the business because it's, it could be an offer just for now, but I also know that for David and uh, his partner, that a straight sale was never an option at that stage. 
because as far as he was concerned, as far as we were concerned, this is just the beginning. So maybe those kind of offers would come in, but chances are how serious uh, we should take them. All will all depend on whether they still want the business to grow to a stage where the, the founders believe that they can take the business to. So, David, it's not just the money. You know, at, at that stage, you, uh, Nar says you weren't interested in a straight sale. If someone had come along and put a enormous amount of money on the table, were there any circumstances where you, you would have said, yeah, take the business? Yeah, that really wasn't of interest to us. We, we did have some approaches, some large corporates who were interested in doing an outright sale, but we felt that there was still so much potential in what we're doing. And the fact that you know our company has a big social impact in helping youngsters from diverse groups and, and gender as well get into technology, we felt there's still a long way to go in terms of helping people, especially with, with the, the technology skills gap just growing more and more in the UK and globally. We didn't really want to sell the whole company and we felt that the PE route was the best way to go to still having the majority stake in that first deal to keep them pushing forward with some growth capital behind us as well. So Rob, there's got to be a click there between the investor and the company. I think that's really important. Um, and actually, we're, we're in a stage now with uh, the private equity industry in the UK where there's a lot of competition. Um, there's a lot of private equity houses out there. So if you're, like David was, leading a growing company that's very attractive, you have the power to pick and choose. And, um, you know, if you just go for the highest number, it could definitely be, you know, a, a mistake. You're going to be having board meetings with these people. They're going to be very, very involved in your business from now on. So if you don't have that chemistry from the start, um, you know, things can go downhill quite quickly. Private equity investment sometimes goes in waves, though. There's often There are often times when there's an awful lot of money sloshing around in the good times. And we seem to be in a, a period where things are getting tighter. Am I reading that right? I think there's still a lot of private equity money around. Um, it probably will get tighter. But as I always say to my clients, there is always competition for good assets. So if you're, you know, like David was a, a company with rapid growth and, and really good prospects, there will always be competition. And that, and that means you can have the power to pick the best partner. So, David, what happened then? You've had the investment, the, the first stage of investment. You were, What's the relationship like with the investors? They bought a minority stake. That's right. With the first deal with KCP, it was a minority. So once the deal was done, there wasn't much change in the way we were running the business. So we, we went back to the office. If anything, we were even more motivated to carry on with the journey after the PE deal. There were some changes at board level where PE do have representation on the board. So there were two partners from KCP on the board. But I found that to be a, a really good thing for us, really, because it challenged the, the management team to really push forward in terms of having some difficult questions outside the internal people in the organization, uh, really questioning what, what you're doing in terms of the direction of the company. So like a fresh set of eyes. That's right. That's right. And also really drawing on their experience in similar industries across their own portfolio, because most private equity firms have a, quite a big portfolio of other companies where they've invested. So you can learn from best practice around pricing and the commercial aspects as well from those other portfolio companies. Because this will be another of those sticky points for some company owners, we Rob mentioned earlier about those that grow it as a family business and don't want it to grow anymore because they don't want to give up any control to anyone. You're now at the point where you're bringing in outside money and outside expertise and people who have the ability to say to you, do it differently. They might not, but the option is there. And some entrepreneurs, uh, some business owners might think, I don't want that. I do want someone else looking over my shoulder, telling me what to do. 
I think as a business owner, a lot longer as you're confident about your business and the business is going in the right direction. I think PE is a great option. I wouldn't have done two PE transactions if I didn't feel it was the right thing to do. I think, you know, there's a lot of bad press around PE as well. But as I said earlier, it's really around that rapport and chemistry. If that's not right from day one, it's not going to get any better once you, you've done the transaction, really. And then the next stage, the second uh, injection of private equity. Talk to us about the circumstances of that. Yeah, so during the, the KCP's tenure as a private equity partner, the company again continued to go rapidly and we made some major changes and made good use of that growth capital, opening new offices in, in central London, uh, a regional office in Birmingham. We brought in more senior individuals, a new CFO, operations, people director, brought in a new IT system. So we did a lot of things with that, with, with the growth capital. And the company actually doubled its headcount again to around 350 people. A profit grew fourfold and revenue grew by 10 million. So we had a really good period of growth during that period. Again, I started getting phone calls from larger private equity firms who have 7 billion under management rather than 350 million under management, you know, large trade buyers, corporates. So at that point, you know, we discussed it in the board meetings and maybe we should do a full process. So in, in January 2020, we were about to do a full process with a lot, lots of different private equity organizations. By full process, you mean? It's almost like a beauty parade uh, of uh, private equity firms and large corporates who make an offer for the business. And then COVID hit in March 2020. We put that to a halt. But then uh, we had quite an interesting development during the second lockdown where Reflection Private Equity approached me to do a deal off the table. Uh, so I met one of the partners who I already knew, again, had a good relationship with. We met for a drink in a hotel, as with most good deals done over a glass of wine. Uh, I actually sort of stated what we wanted in terms of valuation and uh, the deal was completed two months after. And the deal was what? I don't mean what are the financial terms. I mean, what was the consequence of the deal? Yeah, we sold a majority stake this time rather than a minority stake. And the previous investors, are they still uh, involved at this stage? Yeah, they, or No, they sold 100% of their shares to... As part of the same arrangement. That's right. And they made a great return. They made seven times their money for their investors. So it was a great transaction for them. Sure. So at the end of this, you've swapped, effectively swapped PE companies and the second company is owning more of the business than before. One benefit of doing the second transaction, it gives you some more equity to actually then pass on to the next layer of management in the organization. So you can then pass that on to the maybe the layer of management didn't benefit from the first PE, PE deal. Let's talk about the next chapter. David, I'll give you a moment just to have a uh, a little rest because I don't want to, uh, well, unless you're willing to tell us, what is your next chapter? Yeah, so the, the company grew pretty rapidly uh, to the point of the deal with Inflection where we were around 350 people. Since the transaction with Inflection, we've grown to around 1,000 people within the organization. So we've continued that rapid growth story. Now, looking at the next stage, really, we've, cre we've created a value creation plan with Inflection to look at the next potential transaction, which could be an IPO, another PE sale or, or a sale to a corporate. So that would probably happen in the next two to five years. And Rob, just making this a, a more general point for all of the businesses that might be that listening to us, they've grown the business, they've expanded the team, they've got in um, extra finance from whichever source uh, they decide to choose. They reach a fork in the road, don't they? Or a junction in the road where the options are, well, what are they? The, you sell up completely, you pass it on to the next generation or what? 
I think effectively they're the two end games you're going to get to. So you, you will either completely sell down over time, which might be, you know, for example, if David if they're at the IPO, his shareholding might come down further and then maybe, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, he exits completely. Or like you say, if it's a family business, it might go down a number of generations. They're sort of the places you will you will end up in eventually, I think. Some people transition just to a management team and will always retain kind of a, you know, a family shareholding, if you like, but completely separate themselves from the running of the business. But I'd say more often than not, you end up with kind of just a, a family business or you've completely exited. Is this a stage of life? Is this the type of thing that owners start thinking about when they hit 55, 60? Or is it something that should be in the planning long before? Yeah, I think this comes to the, the point I made at the start about trying to lift your eyes to the horizon, because I think for a lot of people, it does come later. They come to maybe that kind of age and think, what 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 is my plan? What should I do? Uh, and oftentimes it's kind of, it's not the optimal time anymore. It's, you know, potentially too late. So I think, you know, ideally you have those those thoughts and conversations early. I mean, this is especially true for succession. You know, if you if you want to bring the next generation in, actually in practical terms, there might be quite a, a small window to do that because there might be 30 years between the two generations. So I think you do need to, if you possibly can, plan for that as, as soon as you possibly can. What if you don't like your kids <laughs> or you think they're not going to be up to it? Well, this is, we, we come across as advisors, we come across this situation a lot and it's difficult. I think, you know, the, the conversations you have with clients like that is, you know, well, you know, you're going to have to go down a sale route or, or a succession plan with a management team. And if you've got your, your children are really keen to be involved in the business, you're probably going to have to have that conversation and it's going to be difficult. It's often the third generation, isn't it, when the wheels start coming yeah, off the back? definitely can. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen this before where you end up with, uh, you know, the business being run by cousins rather than siblings. And it's it's not the same. It's not the same. Uh, there could be a whole other uh, podcast on uh, family run businesses uh, with that regard. David, I'm going to ask you this and I want you to pretend that Rob and Darshan sit sitting beside us. How important is the quality of the advice? I think it's very important. I think we found that in both transactions. In the first transaction, I don't think we had enough external advisors. I think most of it was being organized by our non-exec director. So we didn't hire a corporate finance house, uh, which did kind of stretch the process out to eight months for that first deal. With the second transaction, we weren't as naive to private equity transactions. So we did hire a corporate finance house, which was recommended by my chairman, uh, which really allowed us then for them to handle all those negotiations, those hard negotiations for, for the transaction to be completed in two months. So I would say get the right advisors on board, you know, a good quality legal firm as well as accountancy firm are essential in terms of having a quick transaction. Because it's important to have a quick transaction because then you're less distracted on the transaction rather than on the business. They should really be focused on running the business. What's the best advice you would pass on to an entrepreneur who's just at that stage They've had the br brilliant idea. They've got their business up and running. They're trading. Hurrah. What's the advice for the next however many years of their journey? Yeah, I think what's very important is bringing in the right senior management team quickly. I think I didn't do that quick enough. You know, don't hire actors for your sales team. Maybe bring professional sales professionals in quicker is <laughs> some good advice. And also to start looking at future capital requirements is very important, whether you're, you're looking at bank debt or private equity. But I would recommend private equity because I think it's a, it's a really good option to allow the founders to de-risk while still owning the majority share of the company to continue with the overall growth plans that they have. Why on earth did you hire actors? 
I felt that, you know, they'd be very eloquent on the phone, you know, uh, very confident they could handle rejection, uh, which they and, 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 and they were amazing on the phone. The, the unfortunate thing was they were constantly auditioning for large movie parts. And I, I did have one chap who ended up in a, a large Marvel Hollywood blockbuster. I got to name his name, but he, he worked for me on the, on, on, the, on the phones for a while. And a few were on EastEnders, Bill, and went on to do some very successful uh, acting acting roles. Do they invite you to the after parties? Yeah, I went to a few premieres, so that was that was the benefit of having actors working for you. You, you got onto the red carpet a few times. Here's a, a side piece of advice that uh, <laughs> that doesn't come through. Anyway, thank you all very much for uh, sharing your uh, expertise. Thank you, uh, David, Darsh, and Rob. If you'd like further insights around the owner-managed business lifecycle, you can visit Blick Rothenberg's Entrepreneurs Hub for further insights. That's www blickrothenberg.com slash entrepreneurs I'm Declan Curry this has been the Blick Rothenberg Brave Business Podcast thank you for being part of our conversation